welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Romans 15, 14 through 33. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Alercum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as, as your children, as your church, as your people. Lord, what we're doing here would make no sense without your spirit. It would make no sense for us to get together and, and hope for something to happen in us, something to transform us, unless your spirit were here. And Lord, we believe that you do send your spirit here every time we gather, Lord. We know that you're with us. And we pray, Lord, that you be present with us to bless to encourage, to convict, to save, to transform, to make new. We pray, Lord, that as we leave here, we'll not only know that we have met with the living God, but we'll see the evidence of your power and your presence in our lives. Lord, we don't want to live the same way as we did last week. We want to be made new. We want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold your son, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning that as we behold your son, Jesus, in the word, that we really would be made new, incrementally, every day, more like your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we've been in Romans here since the very beginning of the year. We started in January, and we're just a a few weeks away from being done. Um, This passage gives us an opportunity to think about a topic that maybe we don't really think about very much, which is planning. You know, the topic is is planning here. Paul's showing us his plans. So we're going to look at the idea of planning, our plans and God's plans. Some of you may be making life plans right now. Several of you probably evacuate the state or other things like that. Anybody going to evacuate the state? It depends. Okay, not yet. So um, maybe you guys are making some other life plans about school, about work, about marriage, about relationships. And and this is a great opportunity here, guys, for us to look at that topic. And, you know, looking at Romans 15 and hearing Paul's plans when you read the book of Acts is, is interesting because one of the interesting things is to see how Paul's plans here don't work out. The things that he planned here, only part of them happened. Um, when you read the book of Acts, you see how a lot of his plans unraveled. Reading Romans 15 is kind of like li- listening to some of those 2020 vision messages from pastors at the beginning of 2020, you know, in January. You know, it was 2020, so it's like 2020 vision Sunday, you know, and they gave all their plans for what was going to happen and how we're going to build all these things. It was all going to be great, and those poor guys had no idea what was coming, you know. It's fun to listen to them. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's like watching America's Funniest Home Videos, you know, you're like, poor guy, watching, you know, he's having a good time, and then it's, bam, smackdown. But what we see here in this passage is we see Paul's plans. Verses 24 through 25 show that he wanted to go to Jerusalem, and then he was going to go to Rome, then he was going to go on a missions trip to Spain. But when we read in the book of Acts, when you read Acts 21 through 28, you're going to see that God had different plans for him. Yes, he would go to Jerusalem. But then he would get arrested and imprisoned for two years in Caesarea. Then he would get hauled to Rome as a prisoner and spend two years in jail there. None of that's in his plans here. And we might be tempted to think here like, man, how did Paul get his planning so wrong? Didn't he seek the Lord? Didn't he seek the Lord's will? You know, we expect more from an apostle that he would know what to do and he would know his plans. And you might think that, guys, if you thought that Paul was constantly getting direct guidance on where to go and what to do. Sometimes when you read the book of Acts, you know, you kind of think that's happening. But if you look through it, you'll actually see that those occasions where he's getting direct guidance are actually quite rare. Things like the Macedonian call and things like that. It's not like every day he's like, which way, Lord? And he's telling him exactly which way to go. He does get direct guidance. Sometimes he was called in a really dramatic way. But most of the time he made decisions and plans just like we do. And we can see that from this text. And this is important, guys, because there's a common view of decision-making and planning that's common among Christians that I don't think is thoroughly taught in Scripture. And it goes like this. God has this kind of ideal will for your life. He has an ideal will for your life that you must discover if you're going to be obedient and, and have a fruitful life. And it would include, like, God has an ideal spouse for you. He has an ideal job for you. He has an ideal location for you. He has an ideal ministry for you. And if we were to put it on a diagram, it would be like you could draw a circle of God's moral will, all of his commands, all the things we could do in life that would be totally acceptable and not sin. And in the middle of that circle would be a little dot. And that dot would be God's ideal will for your life. And if somehow you could hit that ideal will for your life, somehow your life would just go really great because you'd be like right in the lane of God's will. Okay? Have you guys ever heard this talk before? Okay. Some of you might believe this and that's okay. Just hear what I say. And the way you discover that little pinpoint is through kind of subjective experiences and internal impressions. And so there's a whole teaching, not from Scripture, of how to do this, how to you know, lay out a fleece, how to feel a piece about it, how to read open doors, and all kinds of things like that. Is this getting more familiar to you? 
Okay, and, and that somehow through this process of subjective signs, you'd find that perfect will of God's life. And if you find it, your life's going to go great. Okay, there's some problems with this view. Um, one of them is that it invests biblical authority and subjective experience. There's actually nowhere we're taught in Scripture to find guidance by looking for signs and, and subjective things to decide, you know, where to go and what to do. And there's nothing in Scripture that teaches us how we'd interpret those signs. You'd think if this was a normal way of making plans and stuff, that somewhere in Corinthians or something, there'd be a chapter on like, here's how to know that that feeling is your feeling or the Lord's feeling, and you know, here's how to know if those signs are really from the Lord. We don't see that. And that's because, guys, the Bible is the only source of that kind of authority and clarity. You'll hear people often talk about, as they're trying to make decisions, I just want to be obedient to the Lord. And what they mean is they want to be obedient to some will that God's kept secret, but they have to kind of somehow figure out. Guys, the only thing you need to be obedient to God is in this book. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. It's that everything you need to obey God and to trust Him is in Scripture. The other problem with this you know, way of thinking is it leads to a lot of passivity and uncertainty. You have a lot of Christians that are you know, being kind of passive, and when you ask them about it, they're like, oh, I'm just waiting to hear from the Lord. Ten more years go by. You know, I don't know. I'm just waiting to hear, right? When they should be acting on things that they know from Scripture. It also leads to a lot of uncertainty. It's very painful to watch people that take that particular approach to decision-making to see how much uncertainty it causes because there's all these subjective signs and you're trying to weigh them and you thought you got it right and then you're like, oh, must have been wrong about this one, but this sign, this is the real sign, you know? And you go back and forth. And, and guys, these are actually, and I don't want to critique it hard because these are actually some of the most genuine God-honoring people. They want to do everything the way God wants them to do, and so they look for these things. Another thing that it does, this kind of decision-making, is it, it gives you really unrealistic expectations. I mean, if you believe that God has some idealized version of your life, it's going to create unrealistic expectations, isn't it? If he has this ideal version that if you'd find it, everything would go great. There's actually a little bit of underlying prosperity theology in that. And so when things don't go well, you blame yourself. You're like, oh, maybe I didn't really see God's will. I thought it was, but maybe I wasn't, you know? You hear people say in counseling, you know, maybe I married the wrong person, you know? And uh, maybe th- she wasn't God's will for me. And I'll say, well, what makes you think that? And they'll say, well, because it's hard. And I'm like, marriage? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and? <laughs> like, so we, what part of this is authoritative? Of course it's hard. You know, Scripture speaks of two wills of God. It speaks of his moral will, which are his commands, which we can find right here in Scripture, right? That's his moral will. And it also speaks of his sovereign will. His sovereign will is the things that actually happen. How do we find out his sovereign will? We can find out if there's a prophecy about it, and we can find out after it happens. So with a person that's not really sure if they really were in God's will marrying a particular person, you know, say, how do I know if it's God's moral will that I would marry this person? Is that person the opposite gender of you? Are you unrelated to that person? Is that person a believer? That's all within God's moral will. And you say, well, that's a really big pool. And I'm not saying there's not better or worse decisions in that pool. But I'm saying that there's an awful lot of freedom within God's will. And, um, and we actually have a huge amount of freedom. How can we know if something was God's sovereign will? We can know because it happened. So somebody says, you know, I don't know if it was God's will for me to marry this person. It is. <laughs> it's God's sovereign will. It did happen, and you are married, and it's time to move forward in making that better. 
So we might blame ourselves. We might blame God. Why did God lead me to this place when there's so many problems? Uh, I would ask, well, did he lead you to that place? I don't know. You followed a whole bunch of subjective signs. I don't know if he was leading you to that place. And really, guys, did God ever promise your best life now? A lot of times as Christians, we think so. Especially American Christians. We're very positive people. We're very enthusiastic. We're very annoying to the rest of the world. We're very can-do. And so we assume somehow that if we're in God's will, that somehow things are going to go great. But Jesus told us this. He took his disciples aside. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay? So there's a whole lot of suffering in following Jesus. And those of you guys who have been following Jesus for a long time know that there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of difficulty. There's, he says, through many tribulations, we will inherit the kingdom of God. But it's worth it. Jesus promised us over and over again that following him would be worth it. If we would lose our life, we would find it in him. So what was Paul's method here of, of planning? You know, Paul was occasionally given direct guidance, but most of the time he made plans just like us. So what can we find from this text on how to plan? And, and the first thing I, I would say here is that we, we plan by understanding our calling through a combination of the word and experience. So Paul was called in a really dramatic way, but then he developed a sense of his calling through a process of God's word and experience. Take a look at verse 15. He says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Over time, Paul developed an understanding of his calling, and he did so through the scriptures. And we can actually see evidence of this. Look at verse 16. He talks about how he has a priestly service to make an offering that's acceptable and sanctified. All four of those words come from the Old Testament. He got these ideas about his calling from the Old Testament. They're all language that has to do with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so Paul applies these to his ministry to the Gentiles. That he's a priest. He's bringing an offering to God that's acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that offering is people. It's the, it's the Gentile converts. Isn't that deep? He had developed this sense of his calling from the Old Testament scriptures. And if you have time later, look at Isaiah 66. That's probably the passage he got all this from, where there's this idea of the Gentiles being an offering back to God. And so Paul got this richer and richer understanding of his calling as he meditated on the word of God. And then as he did that, he also started to see his calling through the way he saw God work through him. Take a look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Aquarium, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." What's he saying? He's saying not only did he see, you know, this calling that he's living into in Scripture, but he also saw God work through him in powerful ways, signs and wonders and all these things. He saw God work through him, and that reinforced that calling. So he sees a calling in Scripture. He, he does ministry. He sees God work through him, and that reinforces the sense of what his actual calling is. And that gave him more and more courage to plan more boldly. Look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Notice again, he comes back to the word to get a sense of his calling. How about you? 
This actually does apply to you as well. Not, not all of us are called to be missionaries like Paul, although I would not be surprised if some of you are, and you should really think about that. But not all of us are called to be missionaries like Paul, but all of us have a unique set of spiritual gifts and a unique calling of God, and we need to discover that over time. And here's how it works. In Scripture, you see the different spiritual gifts that exist, and you see the different types of callings that the Bible talks about. And then in the world, they're ministering to people, people in here and people out there. And you start to see how God tends to use you, how you tend to be fruitful in those callings and gifts. And then you go back to Scripture and, and you study more so that you can be more and more equipped for the calling that you see you have and the gifts that you see you have. And so it goes, the word, you see the spiritual gifts and the callings, and then out in the world, you get ministry experience, both with people here and in the world, and then you start to see, you know, how God's made you, the kind of gifts he's given you, the kind of calling he has for you, and then you go back to the word to kind of get better at it, and you kind of, it's a circular thing, right? It's a process of both experience and and the word, and you develop a deeper and deeper sense of your calling and your gifting. It's a process. And it's something that you understand more and more as you get older. This is one thing that I think there's a lot of pressure on young people to immediately figure out what their calling and gifts are. And it's like this is one of the benefits of age, one of the many benefits of age, is that you start to see more and more how God uses your gifts and you start to see more and more the kind of callings that he has for you, and you start to dig more and more into the word to get better at it. And and then, like Paul, you have more and more courage to push out and try other things and try to minister to people that you might have been intimidated to before. This is what he does in our lives. We all have these callings, guys. You have callings in your family, husband, wife, kids. You have callings in your workplace. God has you in your workplace for a particular reason. We're called to live, guys, with with missionary intentionality in the places we are. And and so we can follow Paul in this kind of planning. And so having that sense of who you are and why you're here and what your gifts and calling are, make it a lot easier to plan. And that's what you see here with Paul is he he knows this and he plans out of it. And so then he moves forward, verse uh, 23, into actual prayerful planning. Paul understands his calling and then he prayerfully plans. The Bible commends planning You know, sometimes in certain Christian circles, there's this sense of like, I just follow the Lord every minute of every day. I just kind of decide what I'm going to do at that moment. We always need to be open to the leading of the Spirit, but the Bible commends planning. Not arrogant planning. James 4 says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go in such and such a town and spend a, a year there and make trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are just a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. As it is in your boasting, you are arrogant in your boasting, and all such boasting is evil. And so uh, the Bible commends planning, but not arrogant planning, not like, I'm going to go do this, and, you know, I, I have all the power within myself to make my own plans. But it does commend prayerful planning. James 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the promise there, guys, you need to catch this. The promise is wisdom. And it's a very certain promise. He says, if you ask for wisdom in your plans, he will give it to you if you do it with faith. You have to trust him that he actually gave it to you. And wisdom, guys, is not a sign. 
Signs are nice, but this is not a promise of a sign. This is a promise of wisdom. It's not very flashy. So you prayed for wisdom, spent some time in prayer, maybe had other people pray for you, maybe sought some counsel, right? All those things. Pray for wisdom. And then you make a decision. And making the decision is trusting that he gave you the wisdom, right? I know that doesn't sound flashy, but it's awesome. Who wants wisdom? Yeah, this is something we totally want. I mean, it's not, you know, signs and wonders, but man, we want it. We need it. And he promises it, guys. And making the decision is the way of saying, I trust you that you give me wisdom, and I'm just going to step out and make a decision. And for some of you, you need to hear that. You're very hesitant. You need to pray for wisdom. Step out, make a decision. Paul's planning here, uh, Paul's planning here also is an example to us of planning. It commends planning to us. You guys realize Paul is planning here 2,000 miles of travel, a lot of it on foot. So he's not planning out like two weeks from now, right? He's planning out several months, maybe a year's worth of planning. And so if we look at this, we can see this is a biblical thing to do, to think about your several months ahead, your years ahead. And it's really well thought through. Paul gives reasons, and we're going to look at them. Paul gives reasons for each one of his plans, and none of them are God told me, okay? None of them are God told me. None of them are I had a sign or I felt an inner impression, right? A lot of people, guys, are waiting for something like that, and they're inactive. He doesn't give any of those as reasons. We'll see what his reasons are. There's no evidence that God gave him these specific plans, right? He's very much a man like us. All of the scripture he writes, obviously, is inspired by God, totally truthful, authoritative. But the way Paul lived out his life, he often had to just make plans as best he could see it. And that's what we see in this passage. And we can see that he bases it on three biblical priorities. The first one is Paul's plans, they prioritize reaching the unreached. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I so often have been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Um, Paul had this real sense that once the church was established, it could take care of itself. So when Paul had, you know, it says, I'm all done in this area. You know, it's not that Paul had shared the gospel with every single person, but he had planted enough churches in that region to where his work was done. He believed that once he planted a church, the Holy Spirit would continue that work for the believers that were there and give them everything they needed to accomplish their mission. Take a look at verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Isn't that cool? He's like, you really don't need me, you know? Uh, I needed to write to you about the gospel. I need to remind you of some things. But you have the Holy Spirit as a body of people. You have everything you need to take care of one another and to live together and to accomplish the mission in your area. Isn't that cool? And so he prioritized going where there was no established church because that was his mission, that was his calling. A member of our church, Lorian, she's actually gone out to do this very thing. So she's Lord willing going to be with us next Sunday to share about her work. Uh, they're doing Bible translation, and so that'll be a really cool thing, so be here for that. But that was Paul's thing, is he would go where there were no churches. How about you? How does the Great Commission inform your plans? I mean, we're not all called to be missionaries, but we are all called to live with missionary intentionality. If Paul had planted us, he would have planted this church and just taken off and assumed that we would accomplish the mission in this area by the power of the Spirit. So let me ask you this. How does the Great Commission inform where you live, where you work? 
how you spend your money, the friendships you form, right? We should have that same intentionality that Paul had in all of our decision makings. And so when we have plans and we think about where we're going to live and we're going to work and who we're going to befriend and what we're going to do with our free time and how we're going to spend our money, all of that should be informed at least by this priority of the Great Commission. Guys, this is why we're here, right? And so that helps us make decisions. So when we make a plan, we should be thinking like, how is this informed by the Great Commission? How does this help me to decide my plans? Also, Paul's plans prioritized the poor. Take a look at verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. From, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. There was a famine years ago in Jerusalem, and there have been years of economic distress there. And so along with planting churches all over in, in Greece and all sorts of different areas in Macedonia, as he planted churches, one of the other things he would do is he'd raise money for the poor Christians that were back in Jerusalem. And so once again, guys, we see Paul making a plan here that's based on something he could explicitly know in God's word. Like Paul didn't necessarily need to be told or have an impression or a sign that he should raise money for the poor. This is something God has been extremely explicit about. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms or a more urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? And so the poor were a massive priority to Paul's. One thing you don't get by looking at this text, I'll show you how big of a priority the poor were to Paul. That He's in Corinth right now, and he's writing to Rome. And in Jerusalem is a 2,000-mile detour, Okay. He's almost there. <laughs> He's like, you want to go to Rome? You go to Rome. He's going to backtrack 2,000 miles to take this offering back to Jerusalem. This was a huge priority for Paul. How about you? You know, how do you prioritize the poor in your planning? This is the most, one of the most frequent and urgent commands in Scripture. You know, it was a, a reason why Paul would go all that distance. You know, when you think through your future plans, where you're going to live, where you're going to work, kind of friendships you have, how you spend your time, and things like that, you should be thinking also about prioritizing the poor. This was a huge thing for him. Another reason why Paul was going all the way back to Jerusalem is that Paul's plans also prioritized the unity of the church. Take a look at verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service in their material blessings. When, therefore, I had completed this and had delivered it to them and have made my collection, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Um, Paul's saying, you know, there's an important thing that's going on here, and it's about showing the unity of the church. So Paul's make, collecting all this money from these Gentile churches, these new converts, to bring to Jerusalem, and he's doing it to show the unity of the church. You guys remember back when we were in Romans 11, that God has included the Gentiles into the people of God. And so in Romans 11, there's this picture of like this olive tree, and it's made up of all the believing Jews from the very beginning all the way up. And then the believing Gentiles have been grafted into that tree, and so there's one people of God. And so what Paul was doing is he's like, I'm going to take this money to show we're family. I'm going to take this money to show that both Jew and Gentile believers are family. And this was important, guys, because Jews and Gentiles in that time hated each other. Okay, with a very intense hatred. And so what Paul wanted to do with this offering was to show that they had become one family in Christ. This is super important to him. In verse 27, he says, 
for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. That's really strong language. You think, wow, what, how did the Gentile Christians owe it to the Jewish Christians to give this money? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought to be of service and material blessing. Let me ask you this. Who in the world do you owe help to the most? Who do you owe help to the most? Who do you depend on in a crisis? It's your family, right? That's what this was to show. This offering, the Gentile believers giving all this money to those poor Jewish believers was to show we're really family. And so we can see how Paul planned here. He planned out a sense of his calling. His calling was developed by a combination of being in the Word and seeing how God used him in the past. He made his plans based on these biblical priorities. And then from there, guys, there's a whole lot of freedom. And I know that part freaks you out. And that's why a lot of us like that ideal will of God is because planning is scary, you know, making decisions is scary, but especially big life ones. And we somehow want to know that somehow we're just going to hit that mark of prosperity and happiness, everything go great. But the truth is that within those biblical priorities and within a sense of your calling gifts, you actually have a lot of freedom. You're like, well, this isn't helping me make a decision at all. Sorry. Right? Here's the other thing that Paul did, though. This is another principle of making plans. Paul trusted God when his plans fell apart. Paul trusted God when his plans fell apart. He knew that all the prayerful planning in the world would not stop disaster from striking. Okay? I love him. That's how I feel. Verse 30. Check it out. Oh, funny thing happened this morning. So, so we're getting all set for church and everything. And usually the custodians are here like right at before 7.30. So it's like 8.15 and they're not here yet. And so I thought this was going to be like God doing this thing for me where I'm talking about God's plans and our plans, right? And then the custodians would come out and then we have to like meet outside in the parking lot, you know, and it's like an opportunity for me to apply it right away, which I wasn't quite ready to do. There's a history behind this too because our very first Easter as a church, the custodian didn't show up. And so we ended up outside, out front. People were like, oh, an outdoor service. And it's like, yeah, in the parking lot, sure, with no bathrooms. It was awesome. So anyway, backing up. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny thing. I was like, Lord, are you doing something funny? This is not funny. So Paul trusted God when his plans fell apart. He knew that all the planning in the world, things could still go wrong. And we can see it in his prayer. Here, if you can hear a hint of this might not go well, in verses 30 through 33, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, this is the part. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul knew that his plans could end in terrible trouble. Even though he prayed through them, even though he really felt like this is biblical, this is what I should do. He, he saw that it could go bad from unbelievers. You see that in verse 3, you know, I, that I'll be delivered from unbelievers. He believed that he could find trouble with believers. In verse 31, he says that his service would be acceptable. You can imagine he brings this big offering. He's thinking like, this will be great. The whole church hugging, Gentile Jew. It's going to be beautiful, right? And then they come and it's kind of like awkward and offensive to them. That could have happened, right? You know, it could have been like, oh, this did not turn out as lovey-dovey as I thought, right? It could be awkward and offensive. And so it could have been from, from believers and unbelievers. Paul knew that his planning could end in a rough way. And you know what's wild as you read in Acts, and I think you should this afternoon, that on his way to Jerusalem, 
Paul became increasingly aware that it would end in trouble. He knew it. On his way to Jerusalem, if you look at Acts 20, verse 22, on his way to Jerusalem, he told the Ephesian elders, he's on this trip, he says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. So as he's coming, he's hearing over and over again, this is going to be bad. And then he's told in, in chapter 21, verse 10, the Holy Spirit tells, and this is an example, how is the Holy Spirit telling him? He's telling him through prophetic words from people, like Agabus in verse 10 of Acts 21. And Agabus, guys, by the way, has an amazing track record. He's the one that actually predicted the famine in the first place. And so it says this, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind this man who owns this belt and be delivered and deliver him to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people all urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so as Paul gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, he became increasingly aware that it's a trap. And you might ask yourself, why doesn't he stop? <laughs> you know, he's being warned over and over and over again. Why doesn't he stop? I can think of a couple reasons. Paul had made a commitment, right? Paul had collected a huge offering to bring to Judea. He had made a commitment to bring these funds to the church in Jerusalem. He had to deliver on his promise. It's about the glory of God. Also, Paul kept on going out of love. Paul loves the church. He wants to bless the church. And even though he knows that this is going to be horrendous and he's being warned over and over again, he keeps going. And then trouble does come. Paul delivers the offering to the believers in Jerusalem and then his plans fall apart. He gets arrested. He spends two years in prison in Caesarea, followed by a long trip to Rome where he's kept two more years. And so the third part of Paul's method of planning, if you can call it that, is he trusts God when his plans fall apart. And there's no hint here, guys, of Paul in his letters ever being mad at God. Why did he lead me here? Why did, you know, none of that kind of stuff. And there's no hint here either of his regret. Maybe I didn't hear from the Lord. You know, maybe I didn't really discern God's will. None of that from him. He knew there were his plans and there were God's plans. Proverbs 16, 19 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know what's really cool, guys, though, is that God's plans are better. You know, you say, how is it better? Like, four years in prison. This guy should be on his trip to Spain by now, right? He should be out there sharing the gospel, and he's in prison. You guys realize that during this long imprisonment, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Any of you guys like those? Any of you guys been blessed by those? Anybody? There's actually been people blessed by these for like 2,000 years, right? Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. He wrote all those during this imprisonment. During this imprisonment, Paul was able to share the gospel with Felix the governor, Agrippa the king, some natives in Malta, and tons of other people along the way. In fact, even some in Nero's household came to Christ through this. At the end of Philippians, he says this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I love that. It's kind of like a I got him, <laughs> you know? This guy like, I'm fine, <laughs> you know? So good. And verse 33 did happen. Verse 33, he said, So by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshing your company. Paul ended up visiting Rome. 
His travel expenses paid for by the Roman Empire. And he spent two years under house arrest. They were able to come and visit with him. They got two years with him, actually. And so God turned Paul's trouble into triumph. It led to imprisonment, eventually led to death. But his trouble has turned to triumph. And God's going to do that for you guys, too. He's going to turn your trouble to triumph. And that triumph may occur in this life to where you can see it, or it may be something that reverberates for eternity. Which do you prefer? You're like, now. I know, me too. Reverberates for eternity is the other option, okay? You can have both, right? But it will reverberate for eternity. Guys, one thing I want to mention to you in, in, in closing is that Paul's doomed trip to Jerusalem reminds us of another man's trip there, doesn't it? Paul's doomed trip to Jerusalem reminds you of another man's trip to Jerusalem. Another man who knew that he was walking right into a trap. Another man who would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus put it this way. As Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took 12 of his disciples aside and said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Jesus was headed not just to possible death, but to certain death in Jerusalem. And yet he pressed on. Why? Why would he press on? Same reason as Paul, basically, right? It was about commitment and love. God had made a commitment, didn't he? He made a promise. He made a promise, an ancient promise, to bring heaven's riches down to the poor on earth, right? That's what Jesus was coming to do. And God, Jesus, loved the church, loved us, and so he pressed on, even to what he knew was a trap. And so Jesus walked right into a trap set for him in Jerusalem because it was the only way to set you free from the trap of your sin. Jesus was willing to be trapped in Jerusalem because it was the only way to set you free from the trap of your sin. The hole that you dug and fell into, by the way. Jesus took your place on the cross for your sin. And we, we saw how God had turned Paul's trouble into triumph, but he actually saved the best reversal for Jesus, didn't he? The cross is the ultimate trouble, the ultimate tragedy turned to triumph. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities that's the evil powers of this world, by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in Christ through the cross. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen? The ultimate, right? The ultimate trouble into triumph. And because Jesus' death for you guys, you can be assured that he's going to do the same thing for all the suffering you've, you've experienced. And some of you guys in this room have experienced profound suffering this year, the last few years, even the last few weeks. And you can know because Jesus has paid the debt for your sin that he will also turn all of your tragedy into everlasting triumph. That's the confidence we have, guys. You know, when we make plans, we make decisions, and it's scary, and we don't know if we made the right decision, our confidence is not that we somehow hit the middle of the bullseye, you know, and we figured it out. Our confidence, guys, is that our God is the God of the cross who knows how to make all things work for his glory and our joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this. We thank you. We thank you for just the amazing gift that you gave in giving your son Lord, for those of us who are parents, we're not giving our kids for anyone. 
And yet you gave your own son, Jesus Christ, for us. Not while we were repentant, lovable people, but while we were yet sinners, you sent your son for us to die for us and to die in such a a gruesome, awful way to experience the wrath of God in our place. We thank you for that. And Jesus, we thank you that all your life you knew where you were headed and you kept going there. We think about those last few weeks and days when you were so determined to go to Jerusalem. Every reason to turn back, knowing that you're walking right into a trap for us. And we thank you that you did it. That you would put yourself in that place. To be mocked and flogged and whipped and insulted and then to be pierced to wood. To feel the cold nails in your wrists, going through your wrists, pinning you to that wood. And that you do that for us. To take away our sins. And Lord, we know that it wasn't the nails that held you there. It was your love that held you there. We thank you for that, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to this beautiful truth. Or that we see something now we didn't see before, and it makes all the difference in the world. Father, we thank you that no matter what darkness we go through, we can have the confidence that all things must work together for our good. Lord, help us to believe that more. And for those who have not been through great darkness, Lord, prepare us. Prepare our hearts for that. Give us that certainty that you cause all things to work together for our good. That whatever suffering you call us to, whatever hardship, Lord, remind us that the glory of this to you and the joy will reverberate forever in the world to come. That you are making for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. Lord, these sufferings are an opportunity for greatness. An opportunity for greatness. An opportunity for the greatness of your glory to show. And Lord, an opportunity for us to offer ourselves as sacrifices to you. We pray, Lord, that you would Make us ready for that. As we worship, Lord, we pray that we'd worship with full hearts, knowing that you're the God of great reversals. You're going to make all things new. You're going to resurrect our bodies. You're going to give us the new earth. You're going to give us unfiltered presence, your unfiltered presence, your face to enjoy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.